Good morning. Well, let me express my gratitude to the eldership of the church for the opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. Many ways, there is a sense uh, in which, uh, particularly here at KBC, because there have been so many of God's servants, worthy servants, uh, that he has used to bring God's word, that one feels like they would much rather be seated in the pill and listening than be the ones that are standing. But perhaps it is also more in terms of the theme of our consideration this morning. The grace of God brings salvation. This is such a grand theme of the Bible that it is difficult to be able to find just exactly the right words to express the grandeur that this is. And it is, if you have noticed in today's singing, has been a continuous echo in the songs that we have sung together. So why don't you join me in turning to God and ask that he will be with us and he will give light and the enabling of the Spirit so that his word might be plain to us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to come before you and hear and learn from you. We ask, O oh God, that you would teach us your word, that you would teach us the truths of your grace, the truths of who you are this morning. We ask, both preacher and hearer, that your word might not be ineffective to any of us this morning, but we plead that by the power of your spirit, you will show us Christ, O oh God, and that indeed you will achieve the purposes for which you intend your word, the salvation of souls and the edification of those who are your children. Honor yourself, O oh God, we ask, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Well, the Christian faith and our faith is a faith in which the God that we worship is the God who is our Savior. He is the God who saves us. And in many ways, this ignites in us more and more worship and gratitude. And this is what God has revealed of himself across the ages. In the Bible reading that we had, for example, this morning, you notice God saying to Pharaoh that I have raised you so that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed through all of the earth. What is God working out there? He is revealing himself as the God who is 
our Savior. Yet in that statement that God is our Savior, we acknowledge that we need saving. We acknowledge what many will refuse to admit today, that we are in need of salvation from sin. Who here this morning can say that they have not felt the badness of sin in their lives and in society at large? Just think about your home settings for a moment. You have locks, you have burglar bars, and all kinds of security features in order to keep away what? The manifestation of sin in terms of thieves, isn't it? Think about our children, the young people. Those of you who are parents, you are always on your children's case because you want to protect them from the vices of society. You want to protect them from drugs, from alcoholism, from becoming junkies, which is a prevalent thing now in our society. It's a manifestation of sin. Even you who are children, can you not say that in your school, and maybe you come back home every so often to your parents and say, I want to change schools because there is a bully at school. Hopefully you're not the bully that other kids are going to cry to their parents about. It's all sin. Think about that sweetest relationship between a man and woman, marriage, and how society faces the breakdown of marriage. Why are things like single parenting becoming a popular phenomenon? Well, it is simply because dad and mom have had such a manifestation of sin that it is no longer possible for them to live together. We are a sick, sin people. Sin has so enslaved us and bewitched us. It's got us moving on its magic wand that we are enchanted by it. In the book of Titus, the Apostle Paul writes this. This is not our text, but this is just the description of what sin is. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That doesn't sound like language of A.D. 55 or A.D. 60, does it? It sounds like a description of modern-day society. It is sin that is our problem. Our own sin has enslaved and bewitched us. And the consequences and the effects of this sin are such that it 
alienates us from God and brings us under the wrath of God. We are separated from God because of our own sin. But not only that, we become enemies of God and we are kept under the wrath of God. Well, this morning, there is good news. The good news is this, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This good news is to all people. It is to all, irrespective of their age, irrespective of their social or moral standing. Some of the biggest problems with respect to the gospel in church history has been either what we see in the Bible, a seclusion of a certain people because of a kind of moralism, as we see it expressed in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or else, it has been a seclusion of a certain kind of people because of their social status in society, so that the Bible is kept in certain languages, in Latin, that the ordinary man could not read. Yet God's word, God's good news, is to all people and for all people. It is to all irrespective of the manifestation of sin in their lives. To those, perhaps this morning, who come feeling the burden and the heaviness of sin, the grace of God has appeared. To those who may well be described as poor, captives of sin, blinded by sin, and oppressed by sin, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are these. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. This morning, if you are coming in need of salvation from sin, well, God has good news for you. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this is in Titus chapter 2, so I will invite you to turn there and let's read together from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. As the apostle writes the book of Titus, he is writing it, in many ways, with, to a people who needed to do two things. He is writing it to a people who were facing the challenge of false prophecy, of false 
teaching that was essentially teaching a false hope. And his concern is that the church might ensure that they are teaching that which accords with sound doctrine, the truth of God. And what is that truth? Well, in the first three verses of chapter 1, the apostle has a beautiful way of summarizing it, and it is simply this, that God is our Savior. Therefore, his work of grace and our faith and knowledge of the truth yields godliness and a hope of eternal life. This is the truth that the apostle says, Titus, that when you appoint leaders, this is the truth that, that they must teach, that God is our Savior. This is the truth that he says to Titus, must be taught to everyone who is in the church so that their lives can adorn the doctrine of God being our Savior. This is the truth that must be heard and believed by all. So that in many ways then, the summary of our message this morning is simply this. God is our Savior. God is our Savior. And our faith and knowledge of this truth must yield in us godliness and hope of eternal life. And as we turn to this text then, there are at least two things that we notice that I would like us to consider this morning. The first is the declaration of the gospel that the apostle makes in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first half of that, the grace of God has appeared, is the declaration of the gospel. And the second half of that, bringing salvation for all people, is a description of the effect that God's grace has. Just those two things for this morning. The declaration of the gospel and the effect of God's grace. Let's begin with the declaration of the gospel. The apostle tells us that the grace of God has appeared. What is this appearing of the grace of God? Well, thankfully, in verse 1 to 3, which I will read now of chapter 1, this is what the apostle says. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God's, of God our Savior. Notice how many times he uses or the God is referred to in that passage. The apostle explains to us that the appearing of the grace of God is essentially 
the revelation of the knowledge of the truth. That's what he says in verse 1. The knowledge of the truth which accords godliness. But he also explains to us that not only is it the revelation of the knowledge of the truth, it is in particular the manifestation of the word. It is the manifested word of God. And when we look at our understanding of the broader, broader teaching of Scripture, we turn, for example, and I will invite us to turn there, to the book of John and chapter 1. And here is what we are taught there. John chapter 1 and verse 14 to 17. Who is this manifested word? We are taught. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. What are we being taught? We are being taught that the appearing of the grace of God is in a sense the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also, as we are told further on, through the preaching of the word. And so what the apostle is arguing then is that God's grace comes to us, it appears to us through God revealing his truth and that revelation of his truth is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that revelation that is the subject and object of all true teaching of God's word. He is saying to us that we who are seated here this morning cannot argue that we have not had the opportunity nor the privilege to know the grace of God because God's grace has appeared. What then is the grace of God that has appeared? Back to Titus chapter 2. I want to suggest to you, by way of understanding what the grace of God is. And, and as I said earlier, this is such a grand theme that I struggle for the right words to describe it. But I hope that by the help of God, God will be his own interpreter and make it plain for us this morning. I want to suggest that God's grace is firstly the attribute of God. That God's grace is a divine characteristic 
of who God is. And that divine characteristic of God is essentially God's goodness and loving kindness. Chapter 3 and verse 4 of Titus, the apostle says that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It is God's moral excellence. It is God's acts of love towards the undeserving sinners. The sinful and the undeserving sinners. And all of this is essentially the divine attribute of God. It is the sovereign and saving favor of God. It is that characteristic or divine attribute of God that, as it were, blends all of the characteristics of God in such a way that they come to us in love and mercy. Think about God's divine attributes like various fruits here. Let's just think like this. This is not a good image, but let's think that you put together various fruits, apples, oranges, grapes, bananas, all right? And all of these fruits are good for the nutrition of a person. They all have ingredients that will enable the health of the person who consumes them. Well, God's grace is that which brings all of these together and blends them in the right mix and proportion so that they have the benefit of the consumer. Let me explain that. When you think about God as sovereign, well, you come to God's grace and you realize that God's grace is God's sovereign act. There is nothing and no one who defines and determines and tells God, you must be gracious. It is his sovereign act. And it is part of God's grace. When you think about God's love, well, God's grace is God acting in love towards sinful and undeserving people. When you think about God's justice, well, God's grace is God ensuring that his love and justice kiss so that the undeserving people that we are, the sinful people, are not consumed by the wrath of God, but rather are transformed into a people of God. 
when you think about the patience of God, well, the grace of God is that long-suffering of God with men and women who rebel and refuse to repent and yield their lives to Him, patiently waiting and hemming them in and bringing them to a point where they confess and admit and acknowledge their need of God as Savior. When you think about God's faithfulness, well, God's grace is God being true to his sovereign purpose and plan to be gracious to hell-deserving sinners. You see, God's grace is that divine characteristic that blends all of who God is so that hell-deserving sinners can experience the love and goodness of God. It is his moral excellence. God's grace is a divine attribute of God. But not only is it a divine attribute of God, I want to say that God's grace is his action towards sinners. It is his action towards sinners. It is not just that the God is gracious, that this is the character of who God is. It is that God acts towards sinners in a particular way, so that who he is comes to us in terms of what he does. And it is in Jesus, the Christ, and his person and work that we have God's goodness and loving kindness more clearly demonstrated to us. In Jesus Christ, his person and work, we have a more fuller explanation or demonstration that God is the God of grace. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is a sermon that the Apostle Peter preached just to illustrate the, act, the action of God further. I will read a few verses there. Acts chapter 2, I read from verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then I skip to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's happening in this passage? The Apostle Peter addresses those who crucified and killed the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what he says to them? He says to them, this Jesus Christ, who out of your own sinfulness you crucified and killed, he is actually God's definite plan out of the foreknowledge to bring salvation to men. While you were acting out of your sinfulness, God in that moment was acting lovingly. He was acting in accordance with his determinate counsel, his will that he had sovereignly purposed outside of any influence or ingenuity of man that he had determined and said, I will bring my graciousness to this people and I will bring it through the person and work of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the Apostle Peter says. He is both supreme and the anointed Messiah. He is both the one who is ruling and the one who is saving. Why? God's grace is acting towards sinful and deserving men. So that when we go to passages like Matthew 27 and we are walking through the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are seeing him being beaten and tortured and mocked. We are seeing him being offered gal rather than water. We are seeing him being burdened with a cross. We are seeing him being mocked. You said you can save others. Save yourself. When we are walking through all of that and we see him hung in shame upon the cruel cross and we hear him crying out in loud cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I must realize that it is the divine God acting in love towards hell-deserving sinners. God's grace is action towards those that deserve punishment. It is God's acting in love towards you. Oh, we must look. We must look intently upon the cross because God's love is fully displayed there. But we don't end at simply looking at the cross. We must look at that empty tomb because God's love is assured. This Jesus Christ who is God's act of grace towards us has actually conquered and he's a victor over sin. All of that, part of God's definite plan, the death and resurrection of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. So God's grace then is his divine attribute. It is his action towards um, hell-deserving sinners. Thirdly, it is the application of God's love to sinners. And I make this distinction because I want us to appreciate that we are not just talking about some abstract truth about who God is when we talk about God's grace. Yes, it is his divine characteristic. But we are also not just talking about some historical fact that Christ Jesus was born, he died, and rose again when we talk about God's grace. We are talking about God coming to hell-deserving, blind, sin-loving sinners and taking who he is and taking what he has done and applying it into their lives in a transformative way. God's grace is the application of God's love. It is not just that God loves sinful men, as a matter of fact, but it is that in Christ Jesus, God lovingly pursues sinful, rebellious men. Strong defines God's grace in this way. He says it is the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in life, including gratitude. What is happening? The Lord, we are taught, pours out the Holy Spirit so that he begins to bring men and women who are rebelling against him, who are not pursuing him, who want nothing to do with him. He, be, he pours out his spirit to bring them under the conviction of sin and bring them to the experience of himself. This is exactly what happened in Peter's times when he preached in Acts 2. After Peter had laid out the facts and the truth of God's grace, the men there asked the question, what must we do to be saved? How is it that they came to a point of asking that question? Well, I am saying it is because God acted in grace towards them. It's what Jesus says in Luke 4 when he says, I have come to restore the sight of the blind. I have come to open up the eyes of those who fail to see the glory and beauty of who I am. I have come to bring in the hearts of sin-sick men and women, boys and girls, a conviction that makes them realize and recognize that they need me. This is God's grace, brethren. This is God's grace. 
And those of us who have come to God in Christ Jesus, we did not come because we were the most clever at a time at which God's word was being preached. We didn't come because we were the most moral or because we were the most attentive. We came while living our lives hell-bent on sin. And God came in and he rudely interrupted us and brought us to the realization of who he is and who we were. And he brought us to our knees and we cried for God's mercy. In many ways, I think that as the Apostle Paul describes what he says in Titus 3, verse 5 to 6, he is possibly thinking about his own experience. Remember that religious man who was determined to religiously fulfill his duty to persecute all that named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember that man who was a murderer in the name of religion on his journey going to fulfill his murderous acts. And then the Lord comes and he appears to him and he says to him, Paul, why do you persecute me? God's grace. It is God applying his love to sinners and bringing them to a conviction of repentance and truth. Now I want to ask this morning, hasn't God spoken to you before? How many times have you sat under the appearing of God's grace, at least in terms of the revelation of the truth of God's word? How many times has Jesus been presented to you as crucified and risen? Hasn't God knocked on the heart of your door that you need to repent, that you need God's forgiveness. You see, God is being gracious to you. He is being that long-suffering, patient God that he is, not wanting that you perish, but that you might come to know him as Lord and Savior, that you might come in repentance and faith. I ask, will you come this morning? Will you see that God's grace has appeared? Will you see that in love, God gently and lovingly pursues you? so that you might come in repentance and faith. Oh, you are not too young, not too young to know of the grace of God. You are certainly not too old to come and respond to God's grace. 
The grace of God has appeared. The question is, has it brought salvation to you? Has it brought salvation to you? Well, this is what the apostle answers in the second half of Titus 2 when he begins to talk about the effect of God's grace, this bringing salvation for all people. You see, God's grace, as J.I. Parker says, and his salvation are cause and effect. The grace of God causes salvation. The grace of God causes salvation. So that when we come to answer the question, we must reflect upon this truth and ask ourselves the question, am I saved? Am I saved? To answer that question, we must obviously have the right understanding of what this salvation that God's grace causes is. And here is how the Apostle Paul teaches us in this passage. He tells us that this salvation is at least two things. Number one, that it is experiential. That it is an experience of what God's work produces in us. And then, number two, that it is definitive. That it is what God has done for us. Let's start with that aspect of God's grace being experiential. The Apostle Paul's concern here was a claim made by many that they knew God and yet their lives denied him. And so he says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then he explains what that salvation looks like from experience. And he says this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What does God's grace look like in the life of a person? It is that God's grace produces a progressively godly person. God's grace produces a progressively godly person. There is in the life of the man, woman, boy or girl who has experienced the saving effect of God's grace a progression of godliness. Having been freed from the power and dominion of sin, there is at work in that boy, girl, man, or woman a new transforming power, the power that enables him, that trains him, that disciplines him to be able to say no to all of those things that are in opposition to God, to be able to say no to the full expression of all of his worldly passions and lusts. 
He doesn't say that of his own accord. It is the work of God. It is God's grace at work in him that enables that. There is a power that enables him to hate sin. To hate sin and to practice godliness. And notice, this godliness we are taught is in terms of godliness with respect to himself, the self-control. But it is also godliness with respect to how he relates or she relates with other people. This uprightness or righteousness. And then it is godliness in terms of his obedience to God or piety as we are taught. But not only is in terms of experiential salvation progressively godly, God's grace produces a heart that is fixed on things above. There is a delight upon those whom have experienced God's grace that enables them to live for a world yet unseen. They are looking forward to something that is beyond this world. They have a blessed hope, the hope of eternal life, the hope of being able to love God without the presence of sin. They have a blessed hope, a hope of being with the Lord Jesus Christ, of seeing him as he truly is. And that hope drives them to live in this world in a way that they are eagerly yet patiently waiting for that blessed hope. And it drives them to live in such a way that they are willing to endure hardship, trials, to fight the good fight of faith, to consider their difficulties and challenges as light and momentary afflictions, which are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in them in Christ Jesus. I want to ask the question, you who profess this morning to have experienced God's grace, is that description a mirror of who you are? That you are progressively godly, that your heart is fixed on things above and your life demonstrates that. That you are living and longing and desiring for a glory that is yet to come when Christ is fully revealed in his glory. Or is this world all you long for and love? The salvation that God's grace brings is a salvation that is experiential. But it is a salvation that is definitive. And I want to close with these thoughts. God has done something. The God who is our Savior has done something. And it is these two primary things we are told that he has done. Firstly, he has 
redeemed those who come to the experience of God's grace. He has paid the full price for their freedom from sin and its consequences. Remember where we started from. We are a sick, sin people, enslaved and bewitched by sin. But God has paid the full price for our freedom. And he has done so in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, we are taught. That price is paid for our sake to ransom us from all lawlessness, to deliver us from the bondage and enslavement of sin, to redeem us from the guilt and condemnation of the law that demands that we be condemned for eternity because of our sin. So when we ask the question, is the full price for our freedom from sin and its consequences paid? The answer is yes, God's grace brings salvation. We are redeemed in Christ Jesus. And the price that is paid for our redemption is the life of Jesus Christ. He has purchased us with his own blood. What a high price this is to pay. Would you look at such a self-sacrifice of God, such a high price that God should pay for your salvation with his own life and still refuse to come in repentance and faith to him. Oh, that God would make you see how great a price salvation comes at and that that would lead you to earnestly seek his forgiveness. But secondly, when we ask the question, can we relate with a holy God? Well, we are taught in verse 14 of Titus 2. Not only has God in Christ given himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, but it is also to purify for himself a people for his own possession. What is that? It is simply this, that God sanctifies, that he cleanses from sin, and he consecrates, he sets apart those who will experience his salvation. This is the effect that God's grace has in terms of bringing salvation. It is that those who come to the experience of God's grace are cleansed from all of their sin, and they are concentrated as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And you can end that text, that they might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. This is the effect of God's grace in terms of bringing salvation. How will you respond to this this morning? What will your response be? Will you 
be saved. Will you receive the grace of God that he gives to all who receive him, to those who believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God? Will you respond by saying to God, your grace has brought this salvation. I receive it. I receive it. But if you are saying this morning that you in fact have received that salvation, then may it be that you, as Christ's possession, will be a person zealous for good works. Zealous for the proclamation of the excellencies of Christ. Zealous for the praise of his glorious grace. And brethren, this should show in how we live and serve God. Here, within the confines of this church, within the opportunities and the needs that are there, how can we say that we have received such a great salvation that God's grace has brought, and yet we drag our feet when it comes to the proclamation of God's grace. We want nothing to do with any evangelistic endeavors. We want nothing to do with pleading and praying that God might reveal his grace to men, women, boys, and girls around our society, and in our communities. Perhaps we should question. For God's grace cannot be without effect in our lives. It cannot be without effect. Inasmuch as we would look upon that person who refuses to live godly with a big question mark and say, is there truly the grace of God there? Similarly, we must look ourselves with a big question mark when we find that there is no zeal for good works in us. We must ask the question, have we truly received the grace of God. This is the grace of God that brings salvation. Has it brought salvation to you? Amen.